Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Art of Charm podcast, where we break down the science of powerful communication and winning mindsets, so you have the cheat code to succeed with people. Every episode is jam-packed with actionable steps to unlock the hidden superpowers inside of you. Level up with us each week by listening to interviews with the best in business, psychology, and relationships. We distill thousands of hours of research into the most effective tools and the latest science so you can start winning today. Let's face it, in order to be seen and heard, your communication needs to cut through the noise, and we're going to show you how. I'm AJ, successfully recovered introvert, entrepreneur, and self-development junkie. And I'm Johnny Zubak, former touring musician, promoter, rock and roller, and co-founder here at The Art of Charm. And for the last 15 years, we've trained thousands of top performers and teams from every background. We have dedicated our lives to teaching men and women all they need to know about communication, networking, and relationships. You shouldn't have to settle for anything less than extraordinary. All right. Today we have Dr. Robert Glover with us. He's back after joining us very early on, almost 15 years ago on the show. He's the author of No More, Mr. Nice Guy, a proven plan for getting what you want in love, sex, and life. Now, Dr. Glover's book has been profound for many of our members in our X Factor Accelerator and Bootcamp program. It's a realization around behavior patterns and the way that they're showing up in the world that's actually repelling people. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the damage that being a nice guy or nice gal actually does to potential relationships. We're going to cover covert contracts, ways in which nice guys and gals are actually seen as manipulative and why that works against you building quality relationships. We're also going to discuss some simple ways that you can start to identify these low-value behaviors in your life and make changes to rewrite your story to become someone who's not a pushover, people-pleaser, or nice guy or nice gal. Dr. Glover shares some great insight from the work that he does in his men's groups, and we've loved and appreciated that book for many of our clients. We're so excited to have him back on the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. Glover. Well, hello, Dr. Glover. It's been a long time since you've been on our show, and we're thrilled to have you back because the subject of passive communication hasn't went anywhere. In fact, we still <laughs> recommend your books to our clients because they're relevant to the situation that they are facing, which is, why am I not achieving at work? Why am I not achieving in dating? Why am I not achieving in my own personal life and the reason being that it is communication problems specifically uh passive communication so dr glover uh, yeah welcome. <laughs> it's good to be back with you guys you know I've, I've i've got a real history with you guys because uh you know back in the day your dating podcast i think was like the first podcast i ever listened to when i was trying to learn how to date and um, and I still remember, you know, you know, like running laps in the park next to my house with headphones on, listening, listening to your podcast. And then just, you know, a couple of years later, it's like I was on your podcast and then uh, hanging out with you guys in Tennessee a few years ago. Oh, yeah, that was fun. That was so much fun. 
Well, our clients have thoroughly enjoyed your book and had a ton of great transformational results in the way they communicate and also breaking some of the patterns that have held them back. And this idea of nice guy syndrome, I'd love to start there and just unpack that for our audience because many feel being nice is the way to get what you want out of life. And yet they find themselves again and again being left behind. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and I, as you guys shared with me, you have women in your audience as well. And so I, I'll, I'll, my work has evolved to where I primarily work with men. Um, but nice guy syndrome applies to, to women as well. You know, a lot of nice girls out there. In fact, many of us nice guys were trained to be nice guys by our nice girl mothers. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been around. So, you know, I, I was one of those people that for most of my life thought, you know, I told people, I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And I thought, why, why doesn't everybody be that way? Why isn't everybody as kind and caring and generous and helpful and peaceful, you know, as I, I you know, I, I valued myself to be. And primarily, I was trying to be different from my father, uh, who, who wasn't a bad man, but, you know, he had his moods and he was demanding and he could be critical. And my mom kept saying, I'm, I'm raising my sons to be different from their father. And, and so I was trying to be different and different than all the bad men I heard, you know, angry feminists complain about in the 60s and 70s when I was just becoming an adolescent. And so I thought, yeah, I'll be that good guy. I'll be the, the good guy. And women will like me because, you know, mom complains about my dad. The women complain about the bad men. They'll, they'll like me. And, um, and so I, I would, I would use what I call nice guy seduction. You know, when I was a teenager and into college, I, you know, I I would never go, you talk about direct communication. I, I wouldn't directly communicate with a woman. I, I would kind of watch her from afar, um, you know, maybe, maybe see if I could sit next to her in class and then, you know, raise my hand and answer as many questions as I could from the teacher or professor to, to show her how smart I am. And uh, maybe, I, you know, I, I would ask her an indirect question or maybe I'd help her do something or, you know, just be nice. And uh, maybe if I ever got the nerve up, I might say, I, I don't I don't guess you'd want to go out with me sometime, would you? And, um, you know, that's as indirect as you can be. And, um so I, I was in my early 30s in my second marriage, and my second wife said to me, you know, I, this, this is something that made no sense to me. She said, you need to get help. She said, you know, everybody thinks you're such a nice guy, but you're not. You can be passive aggressive. You can be hurtful. You embarrass me. You say mean things to me. You have these victim pukes that, you know, where your, your resentments build up and and so, you know, I, I actually went and joined a 12-step group and got a therapist trying to figure out why me being a nice guy didn't make my wife love me and appreciate me and want to have sex with me uh, and be in a good mood. And uh, luckily, fortunately, I landed in some really good environments to really start taking a good look at myself. And, and so to, to kind of then bring that forward to your question, a nice guy, nice girl is a person who inaccurately internalized at a really young age, three weeks, three months, three years old, inaccurately internalized information uh, they believed about themselves in the world based on the experiences they had with their parents, uh, you know, any abandonment experience, anytime they're in pain, uncomfortable, anything that was hurtful to a child, which most things are, um, they internalize. That's my fault. There must be something wrong with me. And, and almost everybody internalizes these kind of messages, but everybody deals with them differently. But for the nice guy, nice girl is that, okay, 
you know, there's something wrong with me. Uh, Mom gets mad at me. Dad, you know, this, you know, they, they, they react. So I'll, I'll try to become what I think they want me to be, and I'll hide anything that seems to get negative reactions. And we're not thinking that out at, at three months old, three years old. It's, it's an emotional response. And because of that, it gets wired in the emotional part of our brain, the, the fight, flight, freeze, fawn, uh, amygdala down on the brain stem that records this emotional memory. And, and this, this is how we, how we survived. Now, what, the only real problem with this is that we grow into adolescence and then adulthood, and those internalized emotional messages that there's something wrong with me, and if I'm going to get my needs met, be liked and loved, I've got to become what other people want me to be. And, and for nice guys, let's be a nice guy. You know, don't rock the boat. Go along to get along. Be generous. Be pleasing. Be helpful. And hide anything about me that might get a negative reaction. And for nice guys, that's usually hiding our wants and needs and our sexuality. So we, we put the, all of those things way, way, way down below the surface to where we're not even aware. You know, we, we, we bury our own sexuality. We bury our own wants and needs because we're afraid if, if people saw those things about us, They'll hurt us, they'll reject us, they'll, they'll abuse us, they'll leave us. So that's the whole dynamic that's underneath the nice guy syndrome, is that I'm not good enough just as I am. I got to become what I think other people want me to be, hide anything from them that might get a negative reaction. Okay, now, you you open up a can of worms. We got a lot to go through there. There's tons of stuff there. So <laughs> so let's let's start. With letting people know who are having a, uh, a an inverse reaction to this idea of being called a nice guy, because any time that we bring this up or I we write a post on it, somebody always has to post that they're upset and they're angry because they've been called a nice guy and there's nothing wrong with being nice and and that being nice has got them where they are now and they hate all the mean people out there. So let's yeah. put this term in in a and a bow and present it in a, in a way that people can understand why we're discussing it, why it was, what it was termed this way and, and how it is being a hindrance rather than helpful. Yeah. You know, cause people will ask me, you know, well, Robert, you know, the title of your book, no more Mr. Nice guy. Has that gotten <laughs> pushback? Has that gotten blowback? And I said, really, it hasn't. I, I think my publishers hoped it would. <laughs> um, but it really didn't happen. And, but the book is still done very well anyway, in spite of not getting initial, you know, blowback. But yeah, the, the title, if you think about it, you know, if you, if you just get real logical with it, why would somebody write a book teaching men to be not nice? There's enough not nice men out there and we don't need a book to teach more men to be not nice. <laughs> and, and, and of course, one thing that I've found, especially in men, but especially in nice guys is real black and white thinking. We think, well, if, if we're not this, we're that. There's only, yes. there's only the two alternatives. And, and so we think, well, if, if, if I'm not the nice guy, you know, if I'm not the, the, the pleasing, caring, avoid conflict, you know, try to treat everybody nice guy, the only alternative is be the asshole jerk. You know, be, be, be like, you know, those, those, those a-holes that, you know, that we don't want to be like and that we all, we've heard women complain about all our life. So that's what we get to thinking. Well, th that's the only alternative. Now, the whole first chapter, well, maybe second chapter, but early on in No More Mr. Nice Guy, I talk about what is wrong with being a nice guy. Because yeah, like me, I thought, why wouldn't everybody want to be like me? I, I'm a nice guy. And the, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, side effects 
of being a nice guy, with perhaps the most significant one is that nice guys are inauthentic, which means they're not honest. Uh, and, and, and which is really a big surprise to most nice guys because we think, I don't tell lies. But do, do you tell people what you really feel, what you really think, what you really want? Do you let them see the real you? Are you a what you see is what you get kind of person? Are you a lick your finger up and hold it, see which way the wind's blowing and then go that? Are you different with this group of people than you are with that group of people? Are you a chameleon? If all those uh, uh, apply, you're not honest because honesty just means you are who you are. And people get to see who you are and know what you feel and know what you think and know where you're going and know what's important to you and know you have wants and know you have needs and you communicate them clearly and, and you're not, you have no shame about that. But nice guys have shame about all of those things. So again, we're, we're, we're chameleons and going back to, you know, my, my, my second wife said, you got, you know, if you don't go get some help, I'm going to leave you. And, and really just what she was saying is your nice guy stuff. Yeah, everybody thinks you're nice, but your nice guy stuff's coming out in these really indirect ways that are hurtful. You know, the, the passive aggressive behavior. Um, and, and again, the victim puke. Try would just let my resentments build up for so. And my second wife gave that name to that, where I, I would just, you know, they would build up until finally something, you know, and I would just blow up. All those little conversations I'd been rehearsing in my head, you know, staying awake at night. Oh, I'm, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that. All of it would come out, right? All of it would come out. And it wasn't pretty. And I, I remember, the, you know, from time to time, my, my, my then wife would say, uh, how, how long has this been bothering you? I go, mm, six months, year, maybe. <laughs> and, and she yeah. would say, did it ever cross <laughs> your mind to tell me this was bothering you? And I think, and I go, no, actually it never crossed my mind. I rehearsed plenty of conversations in my head, but I never thought to say to you, Hey, this is bothering me. Can we talk about it? Can we address it? Can we work on it? Because I just assumed if I did that, you know, she'd go ballistic. She, she, she wouldn't want to talk about anything that might be bothering me, especially if it was related to her behavior. Uh, but that's not about her. That's, that was my stuff. So that's just interpersonal stuff where nice guy stuff comes out. But I've, I've got an online class I've been teaching for 20 years. In fact, Barnes & Noble had me develop it when, when my book was just coming out called Nice Guys Don't Finish Last, They Rot in Middle Management. Whoa. And because, because nice guys, you know, in the workplace, I say nice guys are often good at being good, but not great at being great. You know, we're, we're pleasing enough and conscientious enough. We, we want to do a good enough job to, to get that external approval and validation but to, to really be willing to risk, to take a chance, to rock the boat, to, to focus on what's important to you, to live with your passion, to follow you know, your purpose, most nice guys won't do that. So, you know, we do well enough, but often, you know, not great. And I've, I've, I've had to deal with that. I mean, I've, I've done well enough in life. And sometimes, you know, over the last, well, let's say, you know, five to 10 years, I have to pinch myself because I can't believe my life is so damn good. And, and the reason it's gotten so damn good is, is that I, I am taking risks. I am going for what I want. I am recruiting people to help me get the things done. And, and you know, it's, it's a whole different paradigm. And, and I'm not getting codependent and wasting a lot of time fixing everybody else's problems or, or solving their stuff, which that's a big thing that happens in the workplace and in relationship for nice yeah. guys. They get codependent. And we'll invest a lot of time and energy on other people's issues or problems when we could be investing that time and energy in what's more significant for us. 
So it manifests in a lot of different ways that, that uh, and then we'll, somewhere that we'll need to talk about sex, but I'll, yeah. I'll stop for a minute. <laughs> well, certainly black and white thinking is one of those cognitive distortions. We see yes. it in our clients as well, that it's either you're nice or you're an asshole or you're a jerk. And of yeah, course, exactly. people don't want to be seen that way. There's another one, another cognitive distortion around mind reading that's going on here. And you said with your ex-wife, you would think, if I say this, then you're gonna, she's going to think this, she's going to react this way, so you avoid it. You sweep it under the rug. And you think you're reading other people's minds and then managing their feelings for them. And in actuality, they don't know who you are. And the deception yes. that you're, yes. you're communicating to them actually makes people like you less. And I think that's a really hard realization for a lot of quote-unquote nice people to realize that your lack of authenticity, your lack of being genuine, expressing your wants and needs actually makes people like you a lot less. They can't trust you. They can't put faith in you. They don't know how you're going to react. And you on the outside put on this fake smile, pretend like everything's fine. And people around you, they see you getting taken advantage of. They see you not reacting in these situations. And subconsciously, they're like, well, I can't trust this person. I don't want to put my faith in this person if they're going to react that way when clearly they should be speaking up. Clearly, they should be telling me that something's wrong. I mean, you're so right on. In, in, in No More Mr. Nice Guy, I talk about nice guys being Teflon. And, and you know, nothing sticks to Teflon, which means how, how, how do you have a relationship with Teflon? And, and I make the point that, that people don't connect with each other uh, around perfection. They, people, people connect with each other around our rough edges. You know, that I, I just had a workshop here in my house this weekend. And so Friday through Sunday, um, these guys, they always leave so connected and so bonded. And you guys have seen that when you've done retreats yes. and workshops. And the reason why is everybody talks about their problems, their issues, what's not working, where they're unhappy, where they're stuck. And you hear other people talking about the exact same stuff you're struggling with and where you're stuck. And and then you go, oh, I'm not alone. I can open up. I, as one person reveals, another person reveals. And, and, another, and all of a sudden you realize, you know what? I don't think they're messed up or defective because they got rough edges or they don't have it all together. And we start realizing other people don't think that about us either. And it is those rough edges. It's our imperfections. It's our flaws. that, But our willingness to be able to just be open about that, that lets people get close to us. I mean, I don't want to be next to a perfect person. I want to be next to a person that's got some layers to them, some 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 interesting things, some surprises about them. And if we're keeping all of that packed away, um, yeah. And that whole mind reading thing, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. because I'm creating a video uh, a series of classes, and I just put this in a, in a video just last week. An example, when I first started going to therapy really early on, I started working with a woman therapist. She's a little bit older than me. And I worked with her for years and did groups with her. And she really liked men. I mean, she advocated for men. And um, I remember maybe just a second or third session with her, I was telling her, I was complaining. I was being a victim because I was a nice guy. And <laughs> nice guys tend to do that. And I was complaining about my then second wife and, and said, you know, she could, she could just talk forever and ever. And it's just the same old thing. And she'll go on and on. And I'm just tired of listening to her. Just because I, you know, but, and, and the therapist said to me, you don't have to listen. I mean, that just, I was like a big stick up inside the head. And I said, say that, say, say that again. And she said, just because a woman wants to talk doesn't mean you have to listen. 
And I go, no, you're wrong. It's carved in stone. If a woman wants to talk, you have to listen, and you have to listen until she's done talking. Hold up, check this out. Did you know that most communication takes place at a subconscious level? That means it's taking place whether you realize it or not. But if you know what to look and listen for, you can tap into this process and use it to your advantage. We call this seeing the matrix. Over the last 15 years and thousands of happy clients later, we've built the world's best communication program. We call it the X Factor Accelerator. Inside, you'll learn to use your body to project confidence, be able to read the room and connect with anyone instantly. Implementation sessions to unlock the experience necessary to take your emotional intelligence to that next level. Communication is everything. You're either using it to draw people in or you're unaware of how you are repelling people. Let us give you the feedback you need to effortlessly attract people and opportunities. Charisma is a skill that can be learned. And our exclusive program combines the latest and greatest science has to offer in the field of networking, rapid rapport building, and persuasion. The best way to learn any skill is through experience. Join the X Factor Accelerator to unlock elite communication skills that military special operators, professionals, and entrepreneurs are using to leverage their own social capital. So what are you waiting for? Apply today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com. See you inside. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, my mother trained me. I mean, I had a good teacher. And she said, no, it's actually more authentic, is more loving to let her know you're not interested or you're not available than it is to pretend to be interested, to pretend to listen, or to try to fix and solve the problem so she'll quit talking about it, or to get distracted by every little thing going on around you. And, and I said, ah, you don't know. You don't know my wife. That's not going to go over well. But, you know, I was tired of just, I mean, hours, maybe starting at 11 o'clock at night. She wants to have a conversation that, that could go till, you know, till the break of dawn. And, and so 
I finally got the nerve up. Like I said, this is really early in, in my nice guy recovery work. And, and she started in on something. And I mean, I wasn't as clear and direct as I could have been, but hey, you know, first time, you know, I, I said, hey, I, I said, I, I just need to tell you, I'm really tired. I really don't have the bandwidth to listen. I, I, what, I, what would have been more honest is I have no fucking interest in this thing you're talking about, you know, and because and, yeah, I've heard it so many times. And, but I, I, just, I don't have enough bandwidth to listen. And, you know, in my nice guy mind, she's going to go ballistic. Roof's coming off. I mean, this isn't going to go over well. And she just said, okay, and, and walked away. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wow. Well, but that's not even the end of the story. A little bit later, she comes back and thanks me. She said, thank you for telling yeah. me you weren't available to listen. I went and called a girlfriend, and, you know, I got it all worked out. It's all good. And I'm going, why didn't I realize this 30 years ago? That, you know, you don't just have to sit. And it, so whether whether it's, you know, listening to someone talk when you're not really interested and you're pretending to be, which is inauthentic, but just not assuming and not doing that mind reading that you're talking about and being clearer and being transparent and being completely honest, not in an asshole way, but just honest. I, I didn't have the bandwidth to listen to her talk. That was honest. Listening to her talk when I didn't want to would have been dishonest. And people in a relationship with us want to know our wants and needs and our emotions. So I've come them. to find that to be true. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hiding that, pretending they don't exist, elevating someone else's over your own is doing a disservice to the relationship and it's breeding distrust and ultimately resentment because the other ultimately. person doesn't actually feel like you care, like you're being genuine and authentic. And I think that's really tough. So one of the other areas that we see a lot of nice people, people pleasers struggling with is generosity. And hey, I, I bought her four dinners. I took her out, <laughs> out around the town. I mean, we had a client who was like, I, the women in New York are, must be foodies because I'm taking them to Michelin star restaurants on the first date, second date. I've gone on six dates. And she says on the seventh date, I'm actually not that interested in you. I'm, I'm seeing other people. Yeah. And he but was I, shocked. But I sure am eating well. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. But I, okay, I'm so enjoying all the spots. Let's dive, let's dive into that because this tees up well something in the book that I call covert contracts. And, yeah. and most people that read the book come away and say that was like the most informative piece because it, it really puts a spotlight on the kind of behavior that you're talking about. And, and this is a core, a core staple of nice guy syndrome. And covert contract just means covert means is, is hidden. It's not in the open. It's indirect. It's even unconscious. Oftentimes, nice guys are not aware of their own covert contract. And I promise you, the other people on the other end of the contract have no fucking clue that it exists. So basically, nice guys have three primary covert contracts. And for every nice guy, one might be more prominent than the other. Um, but most have these three. And, and the first one is, if I'm a good guy... I will be liked and loved. And, and, and add to that for us men. And, and the women I want to have sex with will want to have sex with me if, if I'm that good guy. Now, the, you know, what does that even mean if, if I'm a good guy? But and, you know, we're the scorekeeper of that. Well, if I'm generous, if, if I don't argue, if I'm not, you know, if I don't say hurtful things, if I never ask for what I want, that'll make me a good guy. If I'm different from my father, if I'm different than those, that'll make me a good guy. And then everybody will like me and love me. Now, all of these, all of these covert contracts have deep flaws to them. 
Number one, nobody's all good, right? And number two, nobody likes everybody. I mean, I don't like everybody, no matter how good of people. I don't like everybody. So there's no way that you're going to be universally liked. And there is no way, in spite of what men tend to read on the Internet, there is no way that every woman you want to have sex with is going to want to have sex with you. There is no magic bullet. And, and nice guy seduction is actually the worst possible way to try to get that to happen. So, But yes, what happens is this giving to get. The, the strings attached kind of stuff, the if-then. If I'm a good guy, then I'll be, be liked and loved. Um, it's what, one of the things that makes nice guys so, so dishonest and so untrustworthy is because there's they're, they're strings attached. This is actually manipulation if you think about it. Okay, then the second yeah. covert contract, talk about manipulation, is if I meet other people's needs without them having to ask. So in other words, I read their mind, I give to them what I think they, they might want to receive. If I meet other people's needs without them having to ask, then they will read my mind and give me what I need without me having to ask. Now, again, deep flaws in this, because number one, giving to other people so they'll like us and give back is, is codependency, right? It is, yes. it is manipulative. And the other people don't know that the contract exists and that they're supposed to be reading our mind too and giving back. Now, some other real deep flaws <laughs> in terms of this covert contract for nice guys is often they pick people who not only do they not know the covert contract exists, they're often not very equipped to give much back. You know, if you go out and pick a fixer upper of a woman, oh, you know, she's depressed or, you know, she just got fired from her job because she doesn't get along with anybody or she has money problems or, you know, she's, you know, whatever her issues are. Oh, I can fix that. I'll, I'll do this. You know, I can, I can help make her car payment. I'll listen to her talk about her problems. I'll be there for her. I'll do this. And usually what we're picking is people that are not highly functional in themselves. And we think if we get them fixed up, we'll have this diamond in the rough and then they'll, they'll get back to me. But the truth is, they don't have much to give back because they're not even good at, at functioning at, a, at, a, at least a, a medium or a high level themselves. Now, it gets even worse. Remember I said that nice guys hide things? Well, as I said, what we hide is our needs and our wants because most guys, nice guys believe we are bad for having needs and wants. That people are going to respond negatively to our needs and wants that, or that everybody else's needs and wants are more important than my own which that actually makes us really terrible receivers. And this is maybe, this is maybe one of the biggest pieces I've had to work on in my nice guy work. I think, I think yeah. being honest was probably number one, but learning to give to myself, to let other people give to me, to practice receiving, to surround myself with people who want to give to me and who are capable, and me being clear and asking for what I want, not being subtly manipulative so that they'll guess what I want or need and give it to me. I've, I've learned to ask for what I want. Hey, can you do this? You know, and, and just if they can, great. If they can't, find other resources uh, for whatever that is. So, covert contract number two really, really spins up that resentment in nice guys. And, and, not, and guys will say, well, how do you know if I, is this just being nice and generous and kind, or is it a covert contract? Which is a really good question, because it, it does take some time and some consciousness to kind of, you know, part that apart. But one of the best way to tell that if it's a covert contract is that you start feeling resentful, uh, unappreciated, giving more than you get, uh, you know, done to, the, those, those are signs that probably you have covert contracts. Okay, then the third one is 
uh, if I do everything right, then I will have a smooth, problem-free life. Now, again, nobody does everything right. I mean, you know, every great religious book basically says we're all sinners, we're all flawed, we're all imperfect. You know, none of us, none of us, you know, are good enough. And so we're not going to do everything right. And again, we're the scorekeeper of that. I did that right. I did that right. I got a big scoreboard in, in, in my living room. I did that right. I did that right. And so I should have a smooth, problem-free life. And this is a covert contract we tend to make with God, right, with the universe. <laughs> Look, God, I'm a good guy, you know? How, how come I don't have a girlfriend? How, how, how come I have a crappy job? How come I, I drive a crappy car? How, how come, you know, this stuff keeps happening to me? And, and you know, I, I keep getting with people that treat me badly. Life should be good. I'm, I'm doing everything right. Well, life is not smooth and problem-free. I mean, just look at COVID-19, right? Life is not smooth and problem-free. And so if we have this almost Peter Panish infantile belief, oh, I'll do everything right, and then everything will be smooth. Uh, it's a very immature way of living life because the truth is the challenges and difficulties in life are our best learning tool. And if we can say, "Great, this I'm I'm, I'm so gr- I'm glad this is happening. I get to grow. I get to evolve. I, I I get to be matured. I get to be refined by this struggle." Rather than saying, "I don't want struggle. I want everything smooth." And you know, I don't know if you guys, but I've I've never found a relationship with a woman to be smooth. It just never has worked that way for me as much as I've wanted them to be that way. And I've never found life in general to be smooth. Now, life can be damn good, but smooth is a completely different thing. I'm so glad you brought up this example with COVID because I think it sets, it gives us a a different area to look at that we can all... um, understand because it's so near to us. It's still at the moment where I had seen on social media, so many people upset that they had got COVID and they're like, I wear the masks everywhere. I had my vaccine. I didn't go out. I wash everything. I, and they like, I followed the rules and they were so upset. And like nature doesn't nature follows its own rules, right? You're not going to be (laughs) impervious and you're not going to defeat nature. And, and I like that example because we can all relate to that. There's always something in our lives that we're like, I follow all the rules. How's this happening to me? And, and, and of, of course with the spectrum that, that, that is life and our personalities and, and everything that comes with that. Nothing is set in stone. We, we sway back and forth. But if you look at the COVID example, there's probably areas in everyone's lives where we've said that to ourselves, where we've had a covert contract and, and didn't even realize it until it was articulated yeah. for us. I think, and, and that's why so many men had a jarring aha moments in reading your book because they never heard the covert contract articulated out loud. And when they read that, they went, oh no, that's me. And the way your book is written, and this is why I love giving it to people because everyone's like, oh, I'll I'll check this out. No, Mr. Nice Guy, that's a nice title. And so they're reading it and and there's, there's the way it is written and I had this experience where you're just nodding along. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Oh, yeah, I understand that. Oh, yeah, I understand that. And then when the covert contracts it, you're like, oh, no, I've done that, <laughs> right? And now you have to accept that you have done that, and these are areas in your life where you are guilty 
of carrying that contract. You have nice guy tendencies like everybody does. And if now you can, now that you've identified it and you're honest with yourself, you can now begin fixing this. But if you continue to lie to yourself and those around you, you will be perpetually stuck in, as you mentioned, rotting in middle management. (laughs) Well, there's, there's one other point that I want to showcase and that's, what you just walk through, those three contracts, if you think about the amount of effort and energy that you have to expend yes. outwardly oh. on someone else. I don't have to, to think about contract, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you end up naturally with a very small social circle with very few opportunities, whether it's in your dating life, you're pining over one girl who you have multiple covert contracts with, or your friend group, you have a very small friend group who you're keeping score with, who you're constantly being generous with. It's just really hard to maintain a lot of relationships if you have this web of covert contracts. And one of the first things we point out to our clients is that just get some more options, meet some more people. Instead of getting so hung up on a covert contract with this one woman who you sat next to in class for two semesters or your neighbor <laughs> never who you thought her. about, right, who you thought yeah. about for hours on end and brought chicken noodle soup when she was sick. Get some more options. Open the app. Go to the meetup group. Try to find some new people in your life who would like you for you instead of trying to change this one person and get this one person to like you more. Get this one person to fulfill your needs. Get this one person to actually want to sleep with you. All that effort and energy around carrying these covert contracts, it's exhausting. And I think a lot of people, when they read the book and they actually break free of it, there's a load lifted off their shoulders of like, wow, these expectations I've put on myself, others don't put on me. In fact, others find them to be a burden and that's why they're running away from me. That's why they don't want to spend time with me. That's why I'm not invited to the party because they know that, oh, I'm going to show up with a gift expecting to be celebrated, <laughs> expecting to be treated a certain way as if oh, I'm what the a great bottle of wine thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you've hit the nail on the head with this and, and, uh, can I give your listeners a good tool to help them yeah. with what you were just talking about? Because as I said, I just got done with a workshop here this week and had eight guys here from around the world, really. And something that I do at a lot of my workshops, and and I, I, you know, I've done a lot of personal work on myself for the last 30 years, and I attribute that work to, you know, why, why my life seems to be firing on all cylinders in so many ways. I'm not saying my life's perfect. I almost died four years ago. I, I, I had a tumor blocking my small intestine that nobody could figure out what was wrong with me. So for about four months, I lost over 30 pounds. I was in constant pain. I couldn't sleep. I had no clue what was going on. So my life isn't perfect, but thankfully found the right person that found it fixed it, took it out. And, and, and for the last four years, it's like, I've been on fire. Cause you know, when you almost die, when you, when you surrender into death, life gets a lot mm-hmm. more meaningful. So it's kind of like, all right, you know, I, I, I only got so much time left. Let, let's live it. So here's, but here's a tool. that's a simple tool that I credit with, you know, a, a lot of the success, personal success I have in life, not just business success, but life success. I call it cooperative reciprocal relationships. But basically it's this, I, I have everybody take a big piece of paper. And in the middle of this, like a big poster board piece of paper, draw a stick figure. That's you. And and draw a bucket, you know, just a, you know, 
a container on the stick figure. That's your bucket. That's what needs to get filled for, for you to be happy, to be energized, optimistic, to be attractive to other people. That's got to get filled regularly. Now, what happens if we have covert contracts, we're given to get, and 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 we're not given to ourselves in a healthy way, and nobody nobody's giving back because they don't know they were expected to, and we've surrounded ourselves with people that probably aren't very capable of giving, and if they do try to give, we don't let them because we have shame about receiving. So the, co- the cooperative reciprocal relationships, CRRs as I'll call them, are just that. They're cooperative, meaning that everybody involved wants to be there, and they're reciprocal in that everybody involves getting something of value out of the relationship. Now, so I have the people, you know, draw their stick figure, which is them on this piece of paper, and draw a bunch of circles on the paper, and draw a, a two-ended arrow, two-pointed arrow between them and each circle. So the, the arrow points to the other person or the other thing and points back as well. So that, that means there's every, you know, the, that whatever's in that circle and them are both getting value of, of that relationship existing. And then I have them, uh, there's three parts to the exercise. It's really simple. But first part, first page, is that they list all of the cooperative reciprocal relationships they currently have. Now, this that list all their friends. So list all the people in your life. Could be some family members, friends, and give everybody their own circle. Don't just put the word friends in one circle because it's good to know. All right, here's all my friends because maybe we realize, you know, that person, I love that person and I love being with them and I haven't even called them in six months, okay? Well, they're not much of a resource for us if we never call them. We never have contact with them. And just talking to them is a resource. It fills us, and, we, and it fills them. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be our friend, and, you know, we, they, and we wouldn't be their friend. Right. So people, fill it up with the people that are in your life, associates, friends, family, uh, partners, and then in, in circles, put professionals. Your coach, your personal trainer, your chiropractor, your dentist, your accountant, your attorney, uh, you know, whatever, whoever you pay to help you have a better life. Like, for example, I, I have an accountant that I pay 550 bucks a month, and he's like my favorite person on the planet because he, he I don't have to do anything when it comes to accounting. He does it all, and I love that because I hate accounting. So he's one of my CRRs. Now, even if we pay them, he gets benefit because he's getting money. I get benefit because I don't have stress about doing my accounting and taxes and I don't get behind and owe the money to the IRS and all that kind of stuff. So we both get benefit out of it. You, you guys with each other, that's a cooperative reciprocal relationship, both as friends and as business associates, you both get value out of the relationship. You and I have a cooperative reciprocal relationship. I like doing interviews. Um, I know it'll probably benefit sales of my book. You guys like, and I like helping people. You guys like helping people as well. So you have people like me come on your show and do interviews. We're all getting value out of it or we wouldn't be doing it. Okay. So we can add professionals to, to this page. So it's getting bigger. Add practices to this page. Going to the gym, meditation, qigong, walking in the park, taking your dog for a walk, any practice that also fills your bucket. And you might say, well, that's not really another person that's getting something back. But I think if we do these practices and they fill our bucket, that's giving back to the world. I, th- I think the world's a better place if we go to the gym regularly, if we practice some meditation, if we read some you know, self-help or spiritual books. and we keep. I think that gives back. Now, I'd say I'll throw some play on this page as well, some things you can do to play and just relax and enjoy and have a good life. 
Now, so what you start doing is you see this page. These are the resources that I have. And, and I remember I was doing this in one workshop, and a guy said, well, Robert, how, how, many, how many circles should we have? And I, I can be kind of flippant. I said, hey, let's shoot for 100. He goes, eh. I mean, he had like shock. I mean, maybe he had seven. I don't know. And, and I said, you know, actually, yeah, shoot for 100. Why not? Why not have 100 people, professionals, practices, that are there in your life filling your bucket. Because as you guys were saying, most of us have what what called in, in my profession, fused relationships. Meaning we get involved with one person, like, okay, you know, I I, I like I want that girl to like me because I like her. Um, and let's say we even get her to like us. And so now, you know, we, we focus all our energy of just, you know, being with her and giving to her, and maybe she focuses her in. And it's like we give up everything else that's important to us. We give up all our CRRs. And in an infused relationship, the mentality is, um, you belong to me, therefore you should. You're my girlfriend, therefore you should want to have sex with me whenever I want to have sex. You, you are my girlfriend, therefore, you know, you shouldn't talk to other guys. Or, you know, she's saying, well, you're, you're my boyfriend, therefore you should listen to me talk for hours and hours, even if you're not interested. You know, you're my, you belong to me. And this all begins in family, is, is part of religion, is part of culture. We're like, okay, you know, it's being part of the, the, the matrix, the, the, you know, the Borg, where you can just assimilate, you know, you, you belong to them, there's no you. But in, in what we're talking about now with the CRRs, these are called differentiated relationships. This is mature adults saying, do I want to be here or not? Do I want to be a part of this or not? And everybody's doing that in our CRRs. So page one is just to make us aware. What are all of our resources we have and how can we use them more effectively to keep filling our bucket up? So all I had to do was identify it and like within seconds, it came to me. I, you know, I found a men's program. I've been in it over four years now. Uh, I found a new accountant. I don't, rem- I don't remember how that happened, but I got a new accountant who's just, like I said, I love him. A financial advisor. I'm at another workshop a few months later. A guy walks up to me, said, Robert, I was at a workshop with you 10 years ago. Your book changed my life. I'm here again at this workshop. You know, you've blessed my life. I want to bless your life. I'm a financial advisor. I want to help you. I thought, how cool is that? Well, I did my due diligence, checked his, his references, flew my wife and I, who doesn't even speak English, up to San Francisco. I just wanted her to sit with him. I just wanted her to feel his vibration and energy to see, could we trust him with our money? And, and, and she loves him. In fact, I'm talking to him at 2 o'clock this afternoon, my time. So that's, that came along. So page two is, what do you need? Do you need a personal trainer? Do you need a dentist? I always ask guys, how long has it been since you've been to the dentist? And if it's, if it's over a year, that probably means you don't have a dentist. So find a dentist, right? Add that, I need a dentist. And again, whether it's an accountant, whether it's more friends, you know, as a men's group, put that on page two. Page three is also important. Page three are the relationships we currently have that are not particularly cooperative or reciprocal. Maybe it's a buddy from college that, you know, We've kind of outgrown them. They're still drinking and, you know, partying, and we've kind of moved on to a more sober lifestyle. Maybe it's a family member that's a boundary invader, and, you know, all they do is consume and suck the life out of us. Um, Maybe it's our partner. Maybe we're in a relationship. Maybe it's a business partner that, you know, it's just it hasn't been working for a while. So page three says, these are the relationships. I either need to go have a conversation with them and let them know this isn't working. Is there a way we can do it different? Renegotiate whatever that is or cut it off and move on. Prune it back to create room for more more beneficial stuff 
to come in to be part of your page one. So this this is a simple exercise. And if, if, if people will take the 20 minutes to do it, all of a sudden it starts saying, I'm responsible for my needs. And I'm responsible for giving to me, and I'm responsible for surrounding myself with people who want to give to me, and I'm responsible for being clear with them what I'd like from them. And then all of a sudden, that bucket is full and is overflowing, and you're thinking, damn, life is good. That doesn't mean it's perfect, but damn, it's good. I think the struggle for many who are dealing with this nice guy, nice gal syndrome is that the first page tends to be a little bit blank. And the third page tends to be not so full, but they don't often realize just how much effort and energy they are expending on these fused relationships, on these relationships that just aren't working. Why? Because of their people-pleasing nature, they're also conflict-averse, right? So what you talked about, saying to someone, hey, this isn't working, can we try something new? Or saying to someone, you know what, this is a new boundary that I have to establish. I've done Dr. Glover's work. I've read this great book. I realize that I got to start putting some of my wants and needs out into the universe, and I'm not getting them in this relationship. Alarm bells are ringing. This is going to be an argument. This is going to be a conflict. And oftentimes, the reason you ended up in this nice guy, nice gal situation is you've avoided conflict. You've tried your best to sweep it under the rug, to work around it, to to be like water, just avoid it at all costs. And in doing so, the inevitable conflict that then arises when you establish a boundary, when you tell someone, hey, I want to communicate differently, or hey, this just flat out isn't working for me, um, we often don't have the tools to handle those conversations. So I'd love to unpack that if you find that page three is full and your bucket is empty. You know... (laughs) I didn't talk to my mother and father for 15 years at an earlier stage in life, mainly because I did start learning about boundaries and, um, and, and there was some just dysfunctional things going on in my family as a whole. I was starting to, you know, I was in therapy, starting to pay attention to things. And, and, um, the example is my, my mother, every time I talked to her, wanted to complain to me about my father you know, intimate details of their marriage that, that she... Now, I've been listening to her since I was you know, old enough to sit and listen to her. And um, and so in my 30s, I started saying to my mom, Mom, I love you. I like talking to you. Uh, we can talk about anything, but, you know, I'm going to put a limit on talking about dad. And that that upset her. You know, you know we, we had a 30-something year contract where, you know, she could talk about my dad, complain about dad, and I would listen. And and then I would try to not be like my dad. Um, and so, you know, I, I kept every time, every time I talked to her, we were on the phone, she'd bring up my father. Mom, no, I'm going to stop you. You know, I want to talk to you. Uh, and, and, but we're not talking about dad. And she goes, you're telling me what we can talk about. And I go, no, we can talk about anything, just not dad. And then later, my therapist says you're being controlling because you won't let me talk about whatever I want. And I go, I have no fucking clue what you told your therapist or what your therapist actually said to you, but I'm not trying to control you. I just don't want to talk about that. He's my dad. You know, I, I, you're still married to him. Um, you know, talk to your therapist about dad. And then, then she would get mad and she would cry and she'd push through it and get passive aggressive. And I, I you know, invited my dad and her to come to therapy. And my dad begins the therapy session. I'm a therapist, right? Begins therapy session telling the therapist, this stuff is like Jim Jones getting people to drink the Kool-Aid. And I'm going, dad, this is what I do for a living. 
Um, in case you didn't know, you know, I, I went and got a PhD in this stuff. And, and, then, and then, you know, and, I, and I, I was trying to bring up the boundary stuff. And I said, Dad, do you realize that your wife, since, since I was a child, has regularly sat and complained about you to us children and is still doing it to this very day? And it's why I'm setting a boundary that I keep telling her, you're my dad. I don't want to listen to her complaint. And he goes, what is this? Pick on mom day? You know, I'm going, uh, and then my mom just sits there and cries. I'm like, I'm thinking. <laughs> so family, is it great? So anyway, 15 yeah. years, I didn't talk to him. I just had to set a boundary. And um, that later on, before, before my father passed away in 2009, I reached out to him and just expressed some gratitudes I had for some things he'd taught me and things he'd done with me as a boy. And he and I kind of reconnected and to the degree that he's able to have a connection. And, and then so when he had a stroke in 2009, um, he and I were on good terms. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. And then so uh, his hospital was two blocks from my office. And so for the next two weeks plus through the hospital and then hospice, I'm with my mother every day. And we hashed out. We had those conversations about what went on, what happened, what we need from each other. I mean, we're, we're both sitting there with the dying, her husband, my dad, and, and we, we went deep and we talked about stuff and we, we got through it. And so that's, you know, this 2022, I'm not good at math, but you know, it was 12, 13 years ago. And uh, she was just down at my house here in Puerto Vallarta for a week. She just flew home a couple of days ago. I try to get up and see her, you know, up in Seattle a couple of times uh, or every other month or so. And I, we have a boundaried, loving, supportive relationship. And, and I'm grateful for the time I have with her because it may not be a lot longer. But it took having those hard conversations and having boundaries and even removing ourselves from people as necessary. Now, it doesn't always require 15 years of not talking to somebody. Now, I'll give you another example, personal example, I, that I just had with my wife yesterday. Um, my wife's Mexican, um, doesn't speak a lot of English, understands some, but we speak all in Spanish. So I, I, my Spanish has had to get, you know, at least conversational. Um, but she's been abandoned and or cheated on by every man. Every man she's ever known, from starting with daddy, have been a serial philanderer, serial cheater. I've asked her, have you ever known a man who was faithful? No, that doesn't exist. You know, you know, women are always trying to get, you know, uh, other women's men away from them. And so throughout our marriage, she's frequently accused me of things. Or if she notices women noticing me, she'll get mad at me about that. And so she's gotten much better. And I've gotten much better at not reacting. We've really done a lot of work. Our relationship is very, very um, enjoyable, exciting. And, and we've, we've worked through that a lot. But it's not gone. It's a deep core wound for my wife. But she and I are in a place where right now, we went and did a, a, a ayahuasca retreat in November down in Costa Rica, and we both did plant medicine, and it just transformed us. We're, we've been so open and honest and sharing and revealing, and our, and our mantra is, let's work together to help each other clear out every fear and shame that we have. So she has a fear that if I notice some other woman, I'm going to sleep with her, want to be with her, and abandon my wife, right? That's her deep fear from childhood. And it comes out in these dysfunctional ways and accusing me of stuff. So she's been, you know, the, there's a house right next to ours, or a rental house, and it has few people living in it. And a young woman occasionally comes out on her balcony, which is, I'm, always, I'm sitting out in my backyard because I live in Mexico. I'm going to sit next to the pool and enjoy being outside. And she comes out and talks on the phone on her balcony. So of course, my wife thinks she's doing that to get my attention. And of course, I'm going to go sleep with her. I mean, that's just how her mind goes. 
and I've, I've, I've learned, it took me a while, you know, defending myself, vindicating myself, arguing facts, trying to prove something doesn't change that deep emotional fear. So just yesterday, because it came up again, and we were sitting here in my office on my couch, and I said, I would like to help you. I would like for the two of us to work on this deep fear, because I know it's painful for you to think, you know, every woman that walks in front of me, I'm going to sleep with them and leave you. That's got to be amazingly painful. And I said, I want you and I to keep seeing what kind of plan we can come up with to, to help release that fear so that you're not burdened with it and it doesn't, you know, trigger me. And and so that was a negotiation. Instead of saying, stop doing that, you know, or go to therapy, which I, I've said both. <laughs> and, and But to say, can we work together on this? to help you find ways to deal with that deep-seated fear because I don't want you to be afraid all the time because I'm not going anywhere. You know, I'm where I want to be. I'm with you. And so how, how can we work on this together? And, and she, was, she was so grateful for that and felt loved by that that I'm, that I'm wanting to work with her on that instead of just saying, you need to you know, quit being jealous. You know, I haven't done anything, you know, which I, saying that over and over again hasn't changed her fear. I haven't done anything. Yeah, you never do anything. Well, I don't, actually. So that, that goes nowhere. So we've, we've had conversations. But I don't think I could have had that kind of conversation many years ago. I would say, hey, there's a problem here. How can we work together on it? How can we be a team on this? How can we do this open-heartedly with love and, and, and help each other? These fears and, and shame that you're talking about, you know, being alone, that's a, a very strong driver in our behavior. Yeah. And for nice yeah. guys and nice gals, you do that three-sheet exercise. And we see this with our X-Factor Accelerator members all the time. You start to realize that, okay, sheet three is full of people that are not in relationships that are serving me. Sheet one is pretty empty. I don't have something filling my bucket. I don't have hobbies and passions I'm pursuing. I don't have these cooperative reciprocal relationships that really fill me up, that make me feel good. And what they end up doing is ruminating on page three. And what we work on with all of our clients is let's focus on page one. Let's get you moving yes. your body. Let's get you enjoying some hobbies. Maybe it does it require a little bit of therapy to unwind some patterns, to get you moving and feeling good. But the more emphasis you put on page one, getting that professional support, building some new social connections, some hobbies that fill your bucket, the easier those difficult conversations with page three become because you're coming at it with a stronger frame. You now yes. are someone who has more options. And if we know anything from negotiations, those who are able to walk away from the table, well, they end up winning the negotiation. So these unhealthy relationships, these boundaries with your family members, these boundaries with your best friend who's still drinking and partying, comes a lot easier when you're feeling good, when you have a few other options on the apps in terms of dates, you have a new social circle that's burgeoning because you started that bowling league and you joined the kickball team. So getting social, getting new community, seeking new relationships, it's counterintuitive, but it actually helps your existing relationships. It unwinds this mm -hmm. web and this entanglement of neediness and of victimhood and passive aggressive behavior that's created these unhealthy relationships in the first place. Yes. Yes to all of that. <laughs> yes. And I want to add to that for most folks, I, what we end up having to tell them is that they're going to have to get, make some space 
for the new people that they're going to be bringing in their lives. And if you do not make that space, then you can't bring in new folks. As AJ was saying, they're holding on to something and these patterns and having these unserving relationships still in their lives. Holding on to that is what's keeping them from moving forward. And as AJ was saying, for them to hear this, that I'm going to let go in order to get this, uh, is, is is quite difficult because it's always, but those are the, the only friends that I have. But we just put it on a list here that these friends aren't serving you very well. So are you are you ready to- <laughs> Are they this? really friends? Right? And, is and, that how friends treat each other? And of course- uh, we also have a sales strategy for our clients to go out there and bring new people into their lives doing things that they've always wanted to do that have yes. interests and hobbies attached to them so that they're going to be meeting new people who are interested in the things that they're interested in so we can actually begin some new relationships that are serving and reciprocal. One of the subjects that we've danced around from the start of this episode that a lot of nice guys and gals struggle with is hiding their sexual desire. And in large part, that's due to shame. So how does shame show up for nice guys and gals and how does it keep them from what they want? This is true for most nice guys. It's been true for me. Uh, I, I grew up, well, you can't grow up in this world without absorbing a lot of toxic sexual messages. Uh, yes. In America, an American, it was, it, America was founded by uh, Puritans, by, by religious nutcases that couldn't get along with their neighbors in Europe, so they came to America um, and then wanted to do it their way. And, and so in America, we're bombarded with sexual stimuli, you know, media, movies, television, ads, but, but still told, you're bad. Or sex is bad. You know, I grew up in a fundamental Christian church that says, you know, sex is dirty, sinful, and ugly. Save it for the person you love. And you know, just you think, okay, now that I've now that I'm married, right? You cross that line. Now sex is going to be great and it's going to work good. Um, and you know, I, I grew up thinking if I even, you know, if I looked at a woman's breast and had a sexual thought, I was going to hell for all eternity. That was those were the messages. I, so you know, that had to have an impact on on my sexuality. Now. Here's the, here's the deal. I, I ask people a lot of times in my workshops, think of your first sexual experience. What is your first sexual memory? Now, that, that, that might be discovering you have an erection at three years old. Uh, maybe it's, you know, five or six playing with the, the neighbor and showing you yours and they show you theirs. Maybe it was your first kiss. Maybe it was your first wet dream. Maybe it was being violated or molested by a, a family member or a neighbor. Um, maybe, you know, the, it, whatever it comes to mind as your first sexual memory, first sexual thing that happened to you. And then I ask people, what was the context? What was the situation? Was it in the open? What was it, you know, in broad daylight where people could see it? Was it uh, celebrated? Uh, was, was it applauded? You know, could, could you go to your parents and say, Mom, Dad, I had my first wet dream. And they're going, that is fantastic. Let's go get pizza. You know, what, what, was it handled that way? Or was, was it, or was it in the dark? Did it lack information? Was it hidden? Was it secretive? Was it shameful? Was it, oh, no, I'm bad. Oh, no, I can't be found out. Oh, no, I can't tell anybody about it. And everybody I've ever talked to, yes, 
That was everybody's first sexual experience. It was not, hey, let's celebrate this. This is such a positive development in our young life. And that, that didn't happen. It doesn't happen. And so that means for every human being, uh, let's just say 99.9% .9 of all human beings, their earliest sexual experience and experiences were wrapped in shame, wrapped in secrecy, wrapped in guilt, wrapped in darkness, wrapped in, oh, no, I'm bad, okay? And then we then grow up, go through adolescence, come into adulthood, and that stuff doesn't just drop. So sex gets crosswired. It becomes associated with shame. You know, I'm bad. Now, so that might lead to sexual addiction. Uh, it, it could lead to sexual acting out. It could lead to sexual repression. Uh, it, it can lead to, you know, sexually abusing others. Uh, it could lead to being attracted to people that have abuse issues. I mean, it, it manifests in so many ways, but rarely does it manifest in truly conscious, intimate, consensual, isn't this great, we're having sex, sex. It, it usually it gets tainted in, in some way or another. And that's true for everybody. So what do we do with that? I, you know, for me, what my journey, I, 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 my, my very first, you know, uh, resource for, for, for working on me as a nice guy was a 12-step group for sex addicts because my wife kept saying, you're a sex addict. You know, uh, why? Because I want to have sex with you. That makes me a sex addict. And just because you don't want to have sex, you know, why does that make me? But anyway, I went. And I, I quickly found out I was not a sex addict, but this was a group of all guys who really had some, you know, some hardcore stuff going on. So I'd go and I would just share anything that, you know, I'd never shared with anybody. Just, you know, this dark thought or this impulse or this thing I'd done and never, never told. I just started revealing me in a safe place. And it felt liberating. It felt damn good. And then I got a therapist and soon after that joined a men's group that was kind of built around sexual shame. And for four or five years, everything about my sexuality, I just, I put it out there and let it be in the spotlight and let it be seen by others. And so in No More Mr. Nice Guy, I say, don't try to do this alone. Go get safe people to reveal yourself to. Find people that you can reveal your darkest self, the part of you that you don't want to reveal, and find out you're not alone. Kind of like I was saying, guys get in a group or workshop, find out they're not alone, but also get more accurate information and feedback. So, so you think, oh, I have these sexual thoughts or these sexual impulses, that must make me bad. But what if you're with a therapist or a coach or in a men's group, and they're all going, no, actually, that sounds really pretty normal. That doesn't sound like you're a bad person in any kind of way. And you can start me? You mean this thing I've been thinking is bad about me is normal? Or this thing that happened to me that I never told anybody about before, that wasn't my fault or I'm not bad because that, no, that wasn't your fault. You're not bad because that happened to, and, and it's not always quite that simple, but it's a good start at it. And if we can just start opening up and being transparent about it. And like, like I said, my wife and I are in a place right now since doing the, the plant medicine ceremonies our intention is if we have a fear or shame, and, and most, for most of us, that's around sex, if she and I have a fear or shame, we're going to tell each other about it and see if we can help each other lean into it, to go towards it, to, to, to clean it out of, of our psyche and consciousness. So we do need safe people. So in this case, my wife is that kind of safe person. But I also have a coach. I have a men's program. I have guys that know everything about me. So I keep creating these safe places to keep revealing me, whenever, especially the stuff I don't want to reveal, you know, putting the stuff out there that I'd rather keep in. 
And that's how you release the shame. And that's how you free yourself up. And that's how your sexual energy then begins to be able to just flow and just be a part of you. And it makes you amazingly attractive if you're you're not repressing your sexual energy and if you're not channeling it through through some kind of addiction or, or, or anything like that. But you're just you. You're just you as a sexual being. That's amazingly attractive. And, and, and it takes work. It's taken a lot of work for me. I love that. And everyone needs to work on expressing themselves and finding a place where they can do that and feel safe to do that. It's incredibly important. So upon wrapping this up, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you what we ask all of our guests here on The Art of Charm. Dr. Glover, what is your X factor? What is my X factor? Living in my sweet spots. I I just keep making conscious choices of when something feels right, feels good. I spend as much time in that as possible. And if something that doesn't, I spend as little time there as possible. One reason I live in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. It's one of my sweet spots. I love it. And where can our audience find out more about your work that you're doing? drglover.com, D-R-G-L-O-V-E-R.com. It has all my classes, workshops, books, everything's there. Right on. Well, thank you very much for your time today. We have been looking for this interview for quite some time, and I'm glad we were able to make it happen. Thank you for coming back, Dr. Glover. Johnny, AJ, thank you. That was such a great exercise, Johnny, the three pages, allowing you to actually visualize all of the people in your life currently, the people in your life that you need, and start to reorient yourself to just how you're showing up in these relationships. It's certainly important, and I loved hearing about the covert contracts. I remember reading that book a million years ago, and and I still remember stumbling upon those and thinking to myself, Oh no, right? Everyone has these covert contracts going on in their mind. It's not till you're honest with yourself and you recognize it, then you can begin to deconstruct them because adhering to them puts you in a world of trouble as we discussed. And of course, it creates pain unnecessarily for you and the other person. All right, this week's shout out goes to none other than our X Factor Accelerator Mastermind Weekend participants. First one of 2022, and it was here in Vegas, and we had a wonderful time, and I want to thank everybody for coming out. Everyone had learned a lot. We had a lot of drinks, a lot of laughs, a lot of good times, and I can't wait for the next one. And you can join us on that next one. It is going to be in July. And if you are interested in finding out how you come to the X Factor Mastermind, well, then you can apply at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's right. We talk a lot about the X Factor Accelerator program on the show. Many think it's just virtual coaching, but actually we meet in real life to dial in your nonverbal communication as well as just go out and have a ton of fun together. And it was great to get this group out here in Vegas together. All right, we have one quick favor for the audience. Johnny and I are thinking about starting a Patreon as a way to foster the community that we've built over the last 15 years to interact more with our show fans who aren't necessarily interested in coming out to Vegas, taking a program, but would love to meet other show fans as well. So if you would be interested in a Patreon from The Art of Charm, 
Send us a note on social media at The Art of Charm on your favorite platform. Mention Patreon or shoot me an email, aj at theartofcharm.com and let us know that you would be interested in checking out a Patreon from us. If enough people are interested, Johnny and I might just make the jump. Yeah, and if you're involved in some other Patreons and you really like how their tears have gone, put a blurb about it because we're trying to figure out what's going to work best for all of us. Absolutely. So we want your input. Thank you for tuning in. As always, the show is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Go out there and have an epic week. Yeah, I remember you. It was-